All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. Hey, everyone out there in my listening crew, I've got a dedication this week. This one goes out to Randy because he likes my singing. Well, I beat the drum and hold the phone. The sun came out today. We're a born again and there's new grass on the field. Around it third, I'm headed for home. It's a brown-eyed, handsome man. Anyone can understand the way I feel. Oh, put me in, coach. I'm ready to play today. Put me in, coach. I'm ready to play today. Look at me. I can be center field. Yeah, that one's for Randy because he's the guy out there that tells me not to stop singing on each episode. And since Randy lets me use his boat sometimes, I'm going to do what I can to keep him happy. But no matter my terrible singing or not, it's time for a new episode of the Rodcast. So welcome aboard. I am your captain, Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. And we have got a fun and fantastic episode headed your way this week. And no, despite my temptations to do so, this will not be the musical episode, but just another great regular episode in which I may break into song every now and then just because I got song in my heart and sand in my shoes and a bucket full of bait. And if that's not enough, I have got Captain Ali Husseini in the Inshore Offshore Digital Studio. Now, you probably know Captain Husseini is host of the Local Knowledge Fishing Show, but did you also know that he's the mind behind BD Outdoors, that fantastic online angler's resource? Well, he is, and we're going to talk local knowledge and bloody decks with him in just a bit. And after we get some local knowledge, I will eagerly pour a few fingers of bullet rye and let you know what I think about it. And then I'm going to count down my top 10 knots that all anglers should know. Well, maybe countdown isn't exactly the right way to say it because it's not a countdown, which implies a ranking. And I'm not really ranking these knots so much as I'm pointing them out as the knots every angler, angler needs to know. Hey, and speaking of knots, did you know that one of the places that the word knot, that's K-N-O-T, not N-O-T, not not not, comes from the old, the old English world Canada, C-N-O-T-T-A, that means intertwining of ropes, cords, and so forth. It was also used to suggest the difficult problem, a perplexity, something tangled in thought. Now, using the word knot to indicate the speed of a vessel moving on water dates from the 17th century in the 1630s when sailors measured the speed of their ships using a device called a common log. The common log was a rope with knots at regular intervals attached to a piece of wood shaped like a slice of pie. So speed was measured by how many knots would be played out on the rope during a set amount of time, which was measured by the sand in an hourglass. Now, before World War II, the word knot also got used in that sense as the word to mean a single nautical mile, a measure of distance rather than speed. That was about 6,080 feet. Hence, using these measurements, a speed of, say, 10 knots would be the speed of covering 10 nautical miles in an hour. So the word knot, whether the tying of rope or the speed of vessel or the distance on the water, 
all come from the same origin and really are inseparable since the measurement of nautical speed and distance was based on the counting of the knots in a rope. So now when your GPS tells you how many knots you've traveled or the marine forecast tells you that the wind is blowing at 10 knots, now you know why those things use the same word. Got all that? Good, because it's going to be on the exam. And no, I do not accept partial answers or late work. And so now that I have imparted some professional level education to you, let's get casting. Oh my God, we're having an episode. Okay, my listening crew, we have got another great conversation lined up for you this week because this week I have the pleasure of welcoming to the Rodcast Captain Ali Husseini, host of the Local Knowledge Fishing Show and one of the minds behind BD Outdoors. Now, Captain Husseini, like so many of us, took up fishing as a kid. He grew up in San Diego, mostly learning to fish for small trout from a freshwater stream. But when he got to that first taste of saltwater fishing, man, he was hooked and the passion took over. For a long time, Captain Husseini had his feet down in the tech industry, but the fishing passion was just too strong, and he and his partner, Jason, Jason Hayashi, decided to do what so many of us dream about doing and translated their fishing passions into a business. They initiated the world-renowned Bloody Decks Forum, one of the most prolific fishing fora out there, providing daily fishing reports, news, fishing spots, gear tips, recipes, and in-depth articles. Now, Bloody Decks has evolved into BD Outdoors, and Captain Husseini and the BD crew expanded well beyond the BD Outdoors online forum to produce one of the best fishing shows out there, the Local Knowledge Fishing Show, which appeared on the Discovery Channel for a while and is now on Waypoint TV. I, if I remember correctly, new episodes are Sunday mornings at 7, and also on a really robust YouTube channel. I have to say that I've been a fan of the show for a long time, and I love the premise of the show, which brings together Captain Husseini's SoCal fishing expertise and pairs that up with Florida Keys expert and guide Captain Rush Maltz to give us coast-to-coast -coast insight on all things fishing and to provide, as the show's title says, a bunch of local knowledge. So I am thrilled to have Captain Husseini here today, and I'm looking forward to getting some of that expansive local knowledge in our conversation today. Captain Husseini, I can't thank you enough for being here. Thanks for joining me on the Rodcast. Thanks for having me, Sid. I'm down to talk fishing just about any time. <laughs> so we usually begin our conversation on the Rodcast with a little background context. And I mentioned this in a kind of cursory way a moment ago, but could you give us the Captain Husseini origin story, the story of how you got introduced to fishing, how you developed that passion and how you transferred that passion into the career? Yeah, no, that's a, a pretty easy story to tell. Um, growing up, my mom had always been a Navy brat and some of the places they were, they were stationed was in Northern California, which is very close to the Sierra Mountains, you know, Lake Tahoe, Mammoth, that whole area for your, your East Coast guys. Um, so my mom was actually a great fisherman. My mom loved to trout fish. Uh, my grandfather, who was in the Navy, was a, a crazy fisherman. And then I have a couple of uncles on my mom's side who were all really into it. So when, you know, vacation came or whatever, we went to the mountains and we went fishing. So I chased trout up and down the Sierras for, for many, many years. And, uh, and that was the only fishing I knew, honestly, until I got a little bit older. Uh, when I grew up, 
we didn't have a lot of money. So camping was pretty much free. You know, you just took the groceries with you and ate there instead. And we just did a lot, a lot of that stuff. And I got a little bit older. We, um, you know, we put rod racks. My grandpa helped me put a couple rod racks on my bike. And here in San Diego, you wouldn't expect it, but we have a great bass fishery. I mean, we have tons of lakes that hold bass and trout. Um, every, you know, uh, where they call them aggregate ponds, you know, they put around like concrete plants and all that out where I live. There was a lot of those. So we did a, a lot of bass fishing, some of it legal spots, some of it not so legal spots. You know, we were the original ninja fishermen sneaking into places with the, the lure of that big fish. And uh, I came home in the back of a police car as a youth a couple of times, got escorted <laughs> home, but it was all worth it and, uh, and a lot of fun and just a great way to grow up. That sounds fantastic. I love the idea of being so dedicated that you got to sneak into places to catch fish. That uh, sounds like my childhood a little bit too. So, hey, talk to me a little bit about the evolution of Bloody Decks into BD Outdoors and that transition from a specifically SoCal focus to a much more expansive coverage. And since I've talked with a few of my SoCal fishing buddies, I'd love to hear about that decision to switch from Bloody Decks to BD Outdoors as a name, too. Yeah, for sure. So in 2003, uh, my partner and I, were, who were both, Jason, who were both video game nerds, um, we, you know, we were always online playing video games, doing all that stuff. And we were on a few of the West Coast early fishing forums. And uh, both of them were run by guys that were, I don't even know how to say it other than dicks. Like they just, any, any descending opinion, any, anything that uh, that was posted on the site, they delete, they ban you, all that kind of stuff. And, um, and we realized after having been blocked from those sites that, you know, this was before Facebook, people didn't understand how the internet works and that people are generally uh, dicks online, again, for lack of a better term. And you kind of got to let the loonies run the insane asylum. And so Jason had the, uh, the programming ability to set up a forum V Bulletin back in the day, and he started Bloody Decks. And it was basically originally all the real hardcore guys from those other forums gravitated towards it. And that was because we would let them say what they wanted to say, including, you know, cussing and all that good stuff that guys do and, and do what they want to do. And we realized very early on, if this thing was going to grow and be successful, you had to give those guys a lot of leeway. Now, if you threatened somebody or there was hate speech or whatever, we got rid of that, obviously, you know, out of bounds. But the rest of it was, uh, you know, we, we like to think that it had sort of the tone of old school, the movie. You know, we, we've always loved that movie, kind of loved the attitude, do what you said, want to do, say what you want to say, as long as you aren't really bothering anybody. And, uh, and it just, it exploded. Some of those other forums took 10 years to get to like 5,000 members. And shoot, in, in three years, we were doing 30, 40,000 members. And I think now, I haven't looked in a long time, but we got to be up to like 150,000 re registered members. It's It's been a wild ride. Yeah, I mean, it's a fantastic forum. Um, you know, one of the things, I, I lurk a lot on there when I'm looking for information. It's one of the places I go. And I'll have to tell you that one of my favorite threads is that ongoing conversation about the long-range Southern California tuna trips. Um, I fished out of H&M Landing a couple of times, and I really wanted to do one of those long-range tuna trips. But being able to read what everybody else is posting about that on uh, BD Outdoors has just been fantastic. Uh, so I, I guess I would ask, are those long-range tuna trips still worth it? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, 
the thing that's changed with our bluefin fishery that we have now is, is we're catching two and 300 pound tuna 60 miles from the dock. So depending on what you want to catch, like you're not going to catch Wahoo near here. You will catch that on a long range boat. You're not going to catch, you know, yellowtail very often over 30 pounds. You will catch that on a long range boat. But there's been a lot of times, you know, in the last five years where the long range boats are sitting out there next to us on our skiffs. And I, we, that's a California term on our boats. We're on bigger boats than skiffs, but they're out there right next to us, you know, fishing the same waters we're fishing and catching those big tuna very close to home. Excellent. I have something I really want to do. Hey, I want to go back and I want to ask you that shift from bloody decks to BD outdoors. Yep. You know, there was a time in fishing where names like bloody decks or, you know, redfish mafia, you know, there was all this sort of aggressive, well, frankly, masculinist kind of, you know, ah, we're fishermen and we're bleeding. Was that part of the transition in the thinking is also now that conservation has become so much a part and the, the aura around fishing that the idea of bloody decks doesn't play as well anymore? Or was that a different decision? No, there, definitely there was an element of that. I mean, there was actually a lot more motivation to it than than just the name change. Um, when we were bloody decks, we did have plenty of advertisers. Pure Fishing advertised with us and some of the bigger names in the business. But at the, before we changed to BD Outdoors, I had a realization. I started going to ICAST every year in maybe 06, 07. So I've been going for several years and I was trying to attract bigger ad dollars so that we could, you know, either see what this website was going to turn into or make it a full-time job. And it was not a full-time job until 09. And once I really started to go to the show and really started to meet people, I saw that the magazines, most specifically the Bonnier magazines, you know, Sport Fishing, Marlo Mag, all those, those guys, I'm out here fighting for $20,000 deals and $15,000 deals. They're doing $100,000 deals and bigger. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a dumb guy. I quickly realized the editorial support was the big difference. And that was the thing that we were missing. So at about, uh, when about 09, I went, I sold about 10% of our company and took in a couple of investors. And the, the pitch to the investors was with the money they were going to give us is we were going to build an editorial component to our website. And we went from just being a forum to being a WordPress style, you know, news site with the forum attached. And they, they talked to each other and they worked pretty well in terms of sharing content back and forth and all that. So at that point, um, with the editorial content, we did know that the, the BD name was the best thing that ever happened to us. Bloody Dex resonates. If you're born in Southern California, you're a tuna fisherman. And if you're a tuna fisherman, you have blood all over your boat. And a lot of people can't even, I mean, you know, I've fished on 35 foot sport fishes and we get it on top of the hard top. Like it's just part of doing business. And uh, the, the bad thing about Bloody Dex was there was definitely some advertisers that were very sensitive to it. The Shimano's, the APCOs, some of the more conservative companies. And so I, whether it was Locke or Smarts or whatever, we sort of made a transition at the same time to kind of rebrand. We've always left the forum parts. It's Bloody Dex. It'll always be Bloody Dex. It says Bloody Dex all over it. And, and to that end, you know, we, we print and sell thousands of t-shirts every year. We put BD Outdoors on a t-shirt, it doesn't sell. We put Bloody Dex on a t-shirt, it sells like crazy. Uh, you can see on the hat I'm wearing, it doesn't say BD Outdoors on it. You know, so we we, we figured out how to, how to play to the appropriate audiences, I think. And the editorial component, putting out high quality editorial, better than magazine content in a lot of cases, just by the, you know, by the virtue of our platform where we can, instead of having a couple pictures in a magazine article, we have 50 pictures or video or all the others. 
Um, it all came together at once. I was able to hire away the editor of Marlin Magazine at that time. And he gave us a lot of legitimacy and kind of showed us the, the print game. And we applied it to our online model. And, and here we are, shoot, 13 years later. So it's, we did something right. Yeah, that's fantastic. I will tell you, a couple of years ago, I was down in Baja with a media group, a bunch of the Bonnier guys, and um, always, always reference to, well, Bloody Decks would cover it this way, or what well, we can take the information from Bloody Decks. It's always been a part of conversation. You know, I write for several of the Bonnier magazines, and I know that within that group, but also within the overall media industry, that Bloody Decks is always a source of good information. Let's see what Bloody Decks says. So thank you. Thank you. You know, and, and nowadays the direct forum traffic is not what it used to be. Facebook groups has taken that from us. And anybody in my seat who tells you it is is for you know what. But the the thing that we have is we've got seven or eight million pages of catalog content. You can't hardly search a fishing term, technique, boat question, whatever, where we don't come up in the top five. So all of that legacy content still keeps the forums very active. I mean, in this day and age with all the Facebook stuff going on, we're still signing up anywhere from 40 to 80 guys a day, new accounts, because we'll let you look at five or six pages of info for free. And if you want more than that, just give us your info and we're going to send you an email blast or something like that. And you can always opt out of it, but you know, it's the old give and take of the internet. The, the first bite is free after that, you know, you got to pay for your sandwich. Grateful Dead Marketing, man. First one's free. Yeah, exactly. First hit's free. It's yep. been working for years. <laughs> All right, let's shift from BD to local knowledge for a bit. Um, so on the local knowledge website, there's a great quote attributed to you that says, whether it's finding bait structure or the target species, local knowledge is the key to any successful day on the water. Could you explain that a little bit since it seems to be the working motto for the show, not just an important aphorism? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what an aphorism is, but I'll have to look that up later. But uh, <laughs> don't use big words. There's a whole thread on BD Outdoors about it. So uh. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not that smart. Um, yeah, I mean, one thing that I noticed so when we started talking about the show, Rush is not a traveling fisherman. He's a blue collar guy who, you know, he runs charters out of Key West. He is, you can't, you know, talk about Key West fishing and the best down there without mentioning him he's well on his way to be a legend like some of the mentors ahead of him like jose and guys like that and um you know when i traveled a lot especially down in baja in the early years because we were broke and you couldn't buy plane tickets or whatever but we could put fuel in a truck and tow a 14 foot boat behind we always wanted to find the guy and in every fishery there is the guy everybody knows him he's respected he's been doing it a long time he's connected um, you know, and I think in Key West, well, you could definitely make an argument, Rush is the guy. And I think out here, I'm one of those guys on my coast for sure. Um, and that's sort of where that came from. Like, I'll tell you, the hardest part about doing a new TV show was picking a name. I mean, we went to blows on this thing. We had a hundred different names going around. And, well, what does this symbolize? And and the, the gist of it is, is once you pick the name and say it 10 times, it doesn't freaking matter. But I think our name is a lot more significant, you know, the way that we approach the show um, in that everywhere we go, we're trying to fish with that guy and we are trying to locate that guy. And for my benefit, I like to travel fish because it just opens your horizons. I've learned different techniques, caught different species. There's always pieces you can bring back home, you know, anytime you go somewhere new. 
So when we go somewhere, we are looking for that guy. We go to Guatemala and we want to fish with Dave Salazar. He's been down there longer than anybody. And he has that area wired. You know, we go to Puerto Vallarta and we fish with some of my boys there. And, you know, we were in Baja and we fish with Julio and these guys that are connected that know what's going on. And in a lot of cases for us, it's being able to get stuff done. You know, we're only five guys, but we come with a lot of equipment, a lot of moving parts. It never fails, you know, for a battery charger or something, you know, unrelated to fishing. And those are the guys that can make that stuff happen. And it's just been what we've gravitated towards. And it's been a really good model for us. You know, we, we try to find new and exciting fisheries beyond our own bank, backyard. And as soon as we like, like we want to go to Fiji. Oh, sweet. Okay. Well, who does? Oh, the Motu Island. They've got a really good fishing program. Okay. Well, we meet Benny and Benny's become one of our boys. He's a great dude. And it, it's funny when you meet these guys, there's a level of respect towards them and it gets reciprocated really fast when they figure out that you're a student of your game and, and you know, you're knowledgeable in your backyard and you end up making this network of guys where shoot, I can spin the globe almost and, and put my finger down. I've got a buddy there that I can, you know, lean on and, and go bum a fishing ride from just about any time. That's fantastic. You know, one of the things that about the show that I like about it is it's so much more than just a fishing show. It not only gives us these great visuals and information about fishing, but you guys also focus on the culture of where you're fishing, on the people, the food, and everything else that surrounds fishing in that particular local context. And, you know, you kind of alluded to that when you were just talking. And, you know, that's even the last part of your title sequence on the show, so that we know how important that is to the philosophy of the show. And that, to me, is just fantastic that you guys made that decision that we're not only going to show you fishing, but we're going to show you the place of fishing. Uh, just great stuff. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Any idiot can catch a fish. I mean, really, it ain't that hard, right? Anybody can go somewhere, jump on a charter boat, catch a fish. That's not that hard. We want to tell stories. That's the stuff that really intrigues us. You know, a lot of my crew worked with Jose Wahebe for a long, long time. And Jose was a good friend of mine and a mentor, especially to Rush and Mikey, my producer. And, and Jose was the best. I mean, he he did not go somewhere to go fishing. He went somewhere to tell a story. And we knew that we all liked that about what Jose had been doing for a long time. And that was something we really wanted to focus on. When I go fishing now, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to check pretty much everything off my bucket list that I've wanted to catch. So what I gravitate towards is the people, you know, the location, the scenery, the food, you know, the local traditions and all that stuff. I mean, I think that's what really gets us geeked. We go to Panama, we've caught the bear snappers and we've caught yellowfin tuna and we've done all that. But let's go you know, see how these people live or how they run their lodge or how this operation comes together. That's just a really exciting thing for me that, that never gets old. And, and I know our whole crew really looks forward to it. Well, it's, it's just a great philosophy, not just about the show, but the whole approach to fishing. I mean, to be able to say, I'm taking in the place. Hey, I do want to say too, that since we're tell you mentioned Captain Maltz, um, that I do want to get him on the show at some point, And that part of the reason I want to do that is that when he was in high school at Key West High School, one of my dearest friends, Captain Judd Wise, or Coach Wise, as he's known at Key West High, was one of Captain Maltz's teachers. So I figure I can get some inside high school dirt on my buddy Captain Wise from his ex-students. So at, at some point, love to get him on the show as well. Uh, I do a lot of fishing down in Key West, so I'll have a lot to talk to with him about that. But speaking of Captain Maltz, and I'll use that as a transition here, there was an episode of Local Knowledge, I think it was about two seasons ago, in which Captain Maltz 
taught us about slow pitch jigging and the key is for muttons. And when he starts to describe the slow pitch jigs, he compares them to traditional irons that are so popular in Southern California fishing. I know that using irons has been a big part of your fishing. So I was wondering if you could talk about irons, strategies for using them in Southern California and why they transition so nicely into the keys style slow pitch jigging. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they do have a lot in common, but they're used very differently. I mean, traditionally here, we have two kinds of iron, we call it. We've got surface iron, which is a very light material. It's usually aluminum that we we cast and then we work across the surface. And to compare it to something that, you know, most guys are probably more familiar with, like a wax wing lure from Shimano. It swims and then it kicks. And whatever it is about that kick, it just, surface fish cannot say no to it. It's the irregularity of it. It's not done rhythmically and it just fires them off whenever it jumps out to the side. And that's when we see a lot of bites. The other iron that we use, we call heavy iron or yo-yo iron. And that's just, it looks the same. They're usually a little bit shorter and they're made out of a heavier material like zinc, I believe, where you drop it to the bottom. And when we use them a lot for is yellowtail fishing on structure, our yellowtail, similar to the amberjack. Well, if we're down 200 feet or whatever, we see them on the meter, we'll either fire down a bait with a weight or we'll drop an iron down. And when it hits the bottom, you whine like hell. I mean, as fast as you possibly can. And the feeling of that fish, as you're grinding, stopping that lure is so cool. It's one of the best ways to fish. And honestly, if you ask a, a, a true Southern California diehard, you know, this is a live bait fishery, but we live for, we get our long rods out and go sling iron at some yellowtail or some tuna, you know, and then yo-yo iron doing the same thing. So a lot of times also, though, we'll use that heavy iron, especially when we talk about our bottom fish, like the rockfish and the lean cods, we'll drop it to the bottom. And it's big. It's got two metal rings. It's a big piece of metal with a hook. It's clanky. You know, we bounce it off the bottom and the rockfish and the lean cod love it as well. And I think that's where you can draw those similarities to slow pitch. Um, and I think when the slow pitch thing came on, we knew it would work. I mean, Russia's got that bottom down there in Key West, pretty, pretty dialed in. And we know how to get them excited to where, you know, a lot of times I'll eat a bare hook, but the gear that comes with the slow pitch, you know, the long parabolic rods and the little tiny reels and all of that. I mean, the whole package just makes fishing more fun, you know, and that's always what I'm looking for. We caught, you know, most of the fish we want to catch. Let's find another way to do it that's cool and different, either gear down or new technique or whatever. And boy, those muttons really do like that slow pitch. The red groupers love it too, you know, some of the mangies and all that. I mean, it's just a fun way to catch them. And, and on that little light rod, boy, I'll tell you, a five-pound rockfish out here feels like you're pulling on a tuna. It'll bend the rod tip to the water. That's just good fun. Yeah, I, I, I like that you make that comparison. I was just rockfishing out of L.A. a couple of weeks ago. And now that you say that, I really like comparing that to that kind of keys bottom fishing as well and thinking about how those translate in terms of action and approach. So. You know, there are so many great episodes of the show that honestly, I could sit here and ask you about every single one of them, pour a few drinks, you know, just kind of keep you occupied for a few hours, but that's not really realistic. But I want to ask you about two specific episodes because they are, at least in my mind, two of the kinds of shows that just really make me think, man, I want to go there and I want to have that adventure and I want to catch those kinds of fish. And the first of these, and I looked this one up because it was from season five, episode four, when you guys went to Namotu in Fiji. Now, I'd heard about this place because it's a surf resort. And so in the surfing culture, it's pretty big. 
But you guys went there and targeted mahi and tuna, especially dogtooth tuna, which has been one of those species I'm dying to catch. Tell me about that trip and about fishing for dogtooth using those topwater poppers you were using. Yeah, there, unfortunately, we had a couple close calls with doggies on the surface here, but we didn't land any. We did catch some phenomenal yellowfin. I mean, one the one rush down was just a couple of pounds off the island record there. Um, that was really cool. I did get to catch some dog tooth tuna in Australia when I went over and fished with the nomad guys on that trip. And you can't put words to the dogfish tuna. I mean, it is like, it's really like nothing I've ever seen before. It will take the blistering run of a blue marlin. And the thing that blew my mind, I, I've caught, I've been fortunate to catch lots of big tuna. That's kind of my deal. I love catching them. And the dog tooth is obviously not a tuna. It's a mackerel, but you know, we're fishing rods trolling the edge of the reef with these giant DTX lures. You know, you catch the smaller ones on the surface stuff, the poppers and the stick baits, but the big ones that seem like we're coming on the troll. And we hooked a few fish that were in the 200, 250 pound class. And we had the 80 wide with 50 pounds of drag. Now everybody talks about, oh, I'm fishing all this drag. You don't know what 50 pounds of drag is. Like that's a lot of drag. You can't face, you can't really stand up and a harness and fight with 50 pounds. Um, these things would smash the lure. They would make a run like a Wahoo, but against 50 pounds of drag. And then once they started running, we would ratchet the drag up to 60, 65 pounds and the fish would accelerate. A blue marlin can't do that. A big blue fin cannot do that. It is the most explosive, striking, fastest, just gnarly run you've ever seen. But much like a Wahoo, one or two of those rips and they're done. And then the challenge becomes being able to grind that big fish to the boat before the sharks get to them. And so it is a, it's a fish I have a ton of respect for. I definitely did not catch enough of them. We want to go back to Fiji to another area in Southern Fiji, hopefully this coming season and really target big, big doggies and, and see if we can't get a few to the boat. Uh, I am so jealous of that. That's just that gets me drooling. And I, I'm glad you mentioned Nomad Designs in there too, the DTX, because this really they really have emerged as just a fantastic lure company. You know, what they've done with the Mad Scad and the Mad Max and, you know, the DTX Minnow, those are just fantastic lures. Very, very much like working with all of that. All right. So the other episode I want to hear about is that first episode you did about Coronado fishing for Yellowtail. And I've had the opportunity to fish Coronado before. And I fished Southern Cal a couple of times with my buddy Jim Hendricks of Saltwater Sportsman Magazine. So I've seen those bait barges that you show on that episode. But in that episode, both you and Captain Maltz talk about the importance of bait and bait selection. Could you talk a bit about your philosophies in getting and selecting baits? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing here that you learn at a very young age. You know, we, we start on party boats out here. That's really where you cut your teeth. Unless your dad rich and has a yacht or something, but that was not the case for me or most of my buddies. Um, and on a party boat, you've got 30 other guys all trying to catch the same fish, whether that's a yellowtail, a calico bass, uh, a, a yellowfin tuna, whatever it may be, a dorado in the summer. Um, and if you're sharp and you pay attention, you notice that there are three or four guys on that boat that are going to outfish every other person on that boat, one, two to one, three to one, sometimes even more. And the, the things that those guys have in common is bait selection is huge knowing how to fish a live bait um, i know a lot of what you guys do is sending a bait down with a sinker more times than not you guys don't do nearly as much surface 
you know, live bait fishing as we do. Now the sailfish guys do, but that's sort of another animal. Um, and, you know, when the black fins are around, there's a good bit of that going on. But for the most part, you know, our spring all the way through fall fishery is on the surface where we're taking a sardine, we're usually putting a hook through its nose or collar hooking it or butt hooking it. You've got to know when to do what. And being able to cast a conventional reel with that bait, a lot of times you'll see everybody throw their bait in the water. And the one guy who can do an overhand cast, nice and gentle, without backlashing and letting that school run, he'll cast it 10 or 15 feet further and guess who's the first guy to get bit. So presenting the bait and then selecting the bait in the tank. You know, our primary bait here is sardine. That's our, our go-to. Sometimes we have anchovy, sometimes we have live squid, but it's primarily sardine. Being able to pick the right bait, which the simplest description is pick the, the blondest bait in the tank you can find. Very, very light color. That means he's healthy, he has his slime, he's happy. He's generally going to work harder for you when you put him in the water. And then being able to make a good lob cast with the bait. Sometimes it's into the wind and you have to sidearm it and fling that thing low. If you're going with the wind, you're going to want to chuck it up into the air and let the wind carry it. There's all these little idiosyncrasies. And then once that bait hits the water, you're going to work the spool to make that bait do what you want. When he first shoots off, you let him run with no pressure. And after a while, he'll get tired or get lazy. You can actually take your hand on the spool and backpedal the line. You give him a jerk in the nose and he oh, takes off again. And now he's running. And, and that those little, little things like that, knowing when to change your bait. Your bait stops working for you, grind that sucker in, flip them off, pin a new one on, and get out as fast as you can. And don't manhandle the bait as well. You want to cradle it in your hand and hook it very gently. Um, it's just, it's like any fishery, man. The guys will pay attention and, and, and ask the questions and actually implement that knowledge from the older guys. Those are the guys that end up catching more fish than everybody else. And I think when you're young, man, that's what you're trying to do, right? You're trying to prove yourself and you're out there trying to fish everybody else. You know, it's interesting to me too, on that first episode, as much attention as you guys pay to the bait, you do go back to irons, uh, the surface irons in that episode as well. When it comes down to it, just as a preference, do you prefer fishing live bait or artificials, or is it just a matter of the situation? Situational. I mean, if like if you said, hey, you know, you're going to be locked in purgatory for the rest of your life, there's only one thing you could fish, surface iron on a nine-foot rod, throwing it a yellowtail. The other thing that really, really I love is to fish those leopard groupers down in the Sea of Cortez, where we throw surface iron. I'm not exaggerating. We're literally off throwing it into the sand or bounce it off a rock on the shore. And I walk that thing off the beach and juke, juke, juke four feet of water. You have a 16 pound grouper come up and just smash the lure. And then you got to wrestle them out of the rocks. I don't know. Uh, short of what we did on the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, where you're just casting all day with the visual aspect, man, I think that that's the best fishing that there is. It's just, it's, it's so awesome. So awesome. Yeah. When we were, when I was in Baja on that media trip, we were flying back out and I was just looking at miles and miles of coastline with nothing built on it. I'm thinking, I just want a surf rod and a shoulder strips bag of tackle and just walk and surf and cat we're cast that the whole area. It looks so amazing. And the answer is yes. I mean, those spots are so remote. A lot of those fish don't see a lure, but a couple of times a year, it's just crazy. Some days when they're fired up, you'll have clouds of grouper chasing your lure or chasing hooked fish. It's just, and you're in the middle of nowhere and just with your boys. And, you know, we've always done it with a boat. It started with a 14 foot aluminum with a 20 horse outboard, you know, and, and now we've been fortunate to drag some of these big center consoles down there and it's heaven. The people, the fishing, the whole deal, I mean, it really speaks to that culture of fishing again. And if you can't find culture in Baja, you're not opening your eyes. There's just a lot down there. 
Cabo San Lucas has nothing to do with what Baja is like, you know? Yeah. Uh, that to me is just one of those, I want to go back. I want to go back places. Hey, you know, speaking of all of your episodes, I do tend to get very jealous and also kind of animated about a lot of what I see you guys doing, but I also like to watch how you're doing it. You know, like you said, I'm trying to learn. I want you know local knowledge. I want to know. And I, I notice a lot about your gear and I get that a lot of your gear choices are likely inspired by your sponsors. And just let me say, as someone who works in the industry, your sponsor list is freaking impressive, which in and of itself, I see as testament to the excellence of what you guys have been doing. But I do see in your offshore episodes, no matter where you are, you guys rely on those beautiful Penn Internationals. And I get that Penn sponsors you, but those internationals are iconic offshore reels. I recently had Ben Joyce of Penn on the Rodcast talking about the internationals. But given what looks like a clear dedication to them, I'd love to hear your thoughts about the Penn Internationals since you use them to their full extent and have caught a lot of fish on them. Do they really hold a place in fishing culture as iconic as I think they are? Yeah, and I mean, that's a good question we get all the time. They're like, oh, you're only pushing Penn because, well, yeah, no crap. They pay the bills. Like, that's not that's not a secret. But the fact of the matter is, Rush and I will be the first one to tell you, we were both Shimano guys for years and years and years, and Shimano took very good care of both of us, and they make great gear. The thing now is, nobody makes crappy gear. I mean, everybody is making good gear these days. It's very different than it was 10 or 15 years ago, but we've seen progressions, especially in the big game reels, where it was Penn. For, I mean, you go back to your grandpa and your grandpa's grandpa, it was Penn, right? And then the Tiagras came on the scene, and they kind of reinvented the game about, what, 20 years ago or so when the newer, newer Tiagras came out? And then Okuma came out. I mean, a surprise from a company that – wasn't noted for having the toughest gear. They brought the Makaira, and that was it's sort of the next evolution of big game reel. And then, I mean, you, you aren't lying when you say who's got the most recent design in a big game application, and it's Ken. When the VISs came out, I don't know, five years ago, I think, maybe it's four or five years ago, it changed the game. And the reason I like them is you can imagine like the kind of fish we're chasing. And as much as we're fishing, we beat the crap out of our gear. I mean, I'm not a charter guy, but I'm pretty close in terms of the amount of days that I fish a season and all that. And I don't want to think about my gear. I don't like to think about my pickup truck. I want to get in and push the button and go and know that it will tow my boat. And it's the same thing with the internationals, man. And the top list, the VISX series, for what we do, there's not a better reel. And we have asked those things. Like, I just got one back from Penn. And I was telling the guys, it was one of the original ones that I got when they first came out. I think that thing's got a hundred something fish over a hundred pounds on it. And finally a bearing came out. I mean, I don't know what more you could ask for out of a reel than a hundred something, hundred plus pound fish. And we pull on those fish. We're pulling 25, 30 pounds of drag, you know, on a rail rod setup. And my maintenance program, not great. I just rinse them off, you know, and, and sham them at the end of the day. There's guys that take their reels apart at the end of the season and all that. That's not this guy. And Rush is very much the same way. And, and the fact that we have not been able to destroy those things really gives testament. And it's funny. You'll see the guys on this coast that are sponsored by other brands. And you see their kite gear on the fuel dock, not when the sponsors are around. And guess what the number one hands-down big game reel for Bluefin? It's that 1050. The, the wide of the VISX narrow top list. It's just an awesome tool. Yeah, they are fantastic reels. And, you know, I have certainly fished with the Makairas and with, I've got Tiagras sitting in my closet here. 
but that there's something about that Penn International that just always gets my attention. Um, you know, I notice them when they're on other people's boats, and I certainly love fishing with them. Hey, speaking of Penn, have you guys had the chance to try the new Penn Authority yet? I keep wanting to try yeah. it, but ha- how are you liking Rush, that? Rush was fishing the prototypes for quite a while. They're really nice. We like the Slammer Threes because they were bulletproof. Um, they're a little heavier than, than some of the comparable offerings, but I'll tell you, they last way longer. And I'll take reliability over sexy or you know lightweight or whatever. Um, we are super happy with the Slammer Threes and Fours. And now the Authority is just a higher-end version. It's got smoother gearing, smoother drags, a couple extra bearings. They've been great. Um, we took those to Panama. Caught some nice fish in Panama, some nicer Dorado, stuff like that. We've been fishing them here, popper fishing. Um, as much of a West Coast guy as I am, I will stand up all day long and tell you the best way to work a stick bait for our fishery is still spin gear. The popper, you can really use a conventional rod and get away with it. But I feel like when we're throwing those stick baits or really light stick baits, the spin gear is the way to go. I can't stand fighting a fish on one. I mean, I've had a few, you know, 100 pound tuna. We're throwing a 30, 40 pounders and a 100 pounder eats me on a, on a 5,500. It's miserable. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. You just don't have the same leverage. But for making long casts and presenting action on a lure and our 30, 40 pound day in and day out fish, you, you can't beat the modern spin gear. And, and I feel like that authority is right at the top of the heat. Yeah, I'm dying to try one, particularly given the obvious pairing with that new Carnage 3. Um, just it looks like something I really want to want to fish with. Hey, speaking of spinning gear, um, real quick, uh, you know, like I said, I had the opportunity to fish a couple of weeks ago with Jim Hendricks uh, out of L.A. And we were fishing stones for rockfish and California sheep's head. And we were using low profile bait caster style reels. And Jim explained to me that those low profile reels are so much more popular in Southern California than they are than spinning gear is. And of course, spinning gear still dominates here in Florida. In fact, I'm doing a piece right now on the low profile reels because we don't see much of them. Um, have you you guys used the Penn's Fathom low profile, uh, that saltwater oh, yeah. version? No, we, of that? we play with those from prototypes as well. Um, and they're awesome. That for me, like if I'm going light tackle or whatever, a lot of times there's a season, either in a very early offshore season or as the season wanes, we'll get an influx of 10 to 15 pound tuna, you know, five to 15 pound yellowtail, 10 to 15 pound yellowfin. And for me, there's just not a more fun setup. And I want to catch those fish on lures too. I mean, as great as our live bait situation is, it's just fun to catch fish on top water. And that 300 and 400 fathom low profile is just the right tool for the job. And fortunately, the one thing I'll say about Penn that I've seen with, you know, being on the, the BD side of things, we dance with all the girls in terms of tackle, is Penn's willingness to listen to us. There's a line of West Coast series rods that Penn made just for us, just for the way we fish. And we had meetings with Penn and we brought them all of our favorite actions and all our favorite rods and all that. Now with the 400 level one, that's a straight West Coast product. And that was traditionally handled by Abu, but Abu only goes up to like a 40 size or whatever. Now Penn is making some bigger sizes and and uh, and stuff that's 100% geared towards saltwater. And then they've worked with local fishing pros here like Jimmy Decker and Matt Florentino and Ben Florentino and some of these guys that are in that Calico bass scene. And they've built some legit you know, inshore rods the way we like them. We like a longer butt, a trigger stick, an eight-foot rod, you know, various actions depending on the size of the lure that we're using. And now, like, 
uh, we don't want for anything. And, and, you know, in the early days when we signed with Penn five years ago or six years ago, they did the rod selection just wasn't there. They had all the basics, but they didn't have all that specialty stuff. And, you know, as an experienced angler, you really want. And we have shown them what we use and they've answered the call. I, I can't say enough good things about pure fishing and, and how well they treated us and how they listened to us. It's, it's just been a great relationship. Yeah, I think one of the things I've noticed, speaking of, you know, Bloody Decks being that fantastic online forum, is that the pen online presence, that they pay attention to what people are posting on their stuff as well, and they respond to it. So it's good to hear that from the, your perspective, they respond to what they what customers want as well. So, 100%. Oh, so yeah, that's all fantastic stuff. I'm, you know, I really love hearing your thoughts on the pen stuff because, I, you know, I'm just a tackle junkie, so... Um, hey, before we wrap this up, and I want to get to our traditional wrap-up question, I do want to ask you, what can we expect coming up from local knowledge? Where where are some of the new locales coming? You know, we really only book our shows out. I mean, sometimes we do further, but three or four months out, typically, like, we kind of lay back and wait for a cool invite or a hot spot to pop up or whatever. Um, I think one of the things you're going to see from us, though, in the coming season, uh, our new season will start, like, April 1st. We've been releasing an episode a month as opposed to one a week or one every other week. Um, I know some of the stuff that like we talked about internally, we do want to do a couple of big trips to some places we haven't been, but we want to get back to some of the stuff that was so much fun in the first, you know, seven seasons. We have, you know, we've only fished for swordfish with Rush out there on one show. We've done a little sword fishing out here. And, and for me and Rush, I tell people all the time, swordfish, groupers, and tuna. That's all we care about. All the other stuff is killing time. Like, we both love the bottom fish for sure. I love catching buttons like crazy. It's my favorite thing to do. But like you put a gun to my head and say, what do you want to catch for the rest of your life? Swordfish, groupers, and tuna. They just get us wound up. And we just did some phenomenal Baja grouper fishing, which we did in season one. We went back and saw that again. And, and nobody was more excited than us to do that. Uh, so I think you're going to see, you know, a couple of surprises. But then, man, get back to the roots. We need to go yellowtail fishing again. We need to do some of this other stuff that, that we just like to do. And, and uh, you know, there's nothing to prove now or anything like that. We just want to go back and do the stuff that we enjoy and share it with our audience. Oh, that's great. I can't wait to see new episodes. Um, I, like I said, I just love the show. All right. So as our traditional wrap up question, and you've kind of undermined it already early on. So I'm going to throw it out there anyway, but given those fantastic places and the numbers of species that you've caught, What's your grail fish? What's that one fish that's still actually on your bucket list that's out there calling your name? You know, that's a really good question. We do get asked that a lot. Um, I like skill fish. So, like, prior to that, it was a West Coast swordfish. Now, with some of the sciences unlocked that fishery, I've done it. You know, we can do it pretty regularly. It's just a matter of putting in the time and knowing what you're doing. There is a fish out here that's thought of as bycatch when you're sword fishing that I've sort of made it my goal to target this year, and that's the opa. Guys catch opas by mistake, and that's cool. I have not taken anything away from you, but when we go fishing, every trip we go sword fishing, we have what's called the opera rod, and we set the opera rod at a different depth than we set our swordfish here. We just use an old sword bait, a similar rig, you know, kind of a more compact rig as we would use for swords. And I think when I get that OPA, I can die. I mean, I may just die on the spot. Like we've caught everything from bonefish to swordfish that swims in our local waters. 
And, you know, OPA, the OPA, I think that's, that's my holy grail, at least locally. And uh, I do still want, I want that rat picture with the giant Napoleon rats. I caught some small ones in Australia. I want that monster lap dance, you know, both, both arms cradling it. And I would really like to get a very large dog into the boat. But, you know, I don't think anything's as special as catching that fish that's probably the most elusive in your own water. So OPA is going to be my final answer. That is a fantastic answer. Nobody has said OPA before. I always thought, and, you know, just my ignorance here, I thought OPA were primarily, feed, they primarily fed on jellyfish. No, sir. Mola molas, dude. Which molas, often yeah, okay. With. Very yeah. often confused with. And we catch those sometimes on a sardine, and you swear you got a 300-pound tuna until you see that big gray turd roll up next to the boat, and you got to cut them loose. But no, there's, I don't even, honestly, if you said, where would you go to Target and Opa? Aside from what I know the commercial guys do, I don't know there's anywhere you go do it. I know we have them here. And it's funny when because we started doing this last year, specifically targeting them at a depth with a bait and a specific rig. And when I was rolling out for my first sword trip a month and a half ago, I texted a buddy of mine who is a scripts uh, researcher, and he is the leading authority on OPA. And I said, hey, dude, what, what depth should I be setting this bait at? Because I was thinking 600 feet from what I knew. And uh, I get a text message. It's just an image, and it's all the tagging data on OPA on the West Coast. And what, it, what depths they like to hang at during different periods of the day. I'm like, well, yeah, if you don't have an answer for me, that's cool. Like, I mean, it was just, well, here's the keys to the city. Now you go put the pieces together. Uh, challenge accepted. That that gets me fired up. I will catch one. I was sure I was going to catch one this year. The season's getting a little late. But uh, I think we're going to get back out there on Thursday and try for swords. And, and where the swords are, the OPA generally are. And there has been a, there, so there used to not be any way to reliably catch them. And for commercial benefit, it's Hawaii, some of the longline guys would get them. Well, we've had a commercial fishery out of San Diego and out of Hawaii take place where kind of right in the middle between San Diego and Hawaii, these guys go set very, very deep long lines for big, for big eye tuna and they catch opa with them. So now you can go to any fish market in San Diego, you can get fresh opa to eat, no problem. But actually catching one, I got to touch tons of them. My friends own a big fish market here eating them a bunch, know all about them, but to get one on my own boat, man, that would be something special. That is, that is great. I love the fact that part of that story ties right into the whole local knowledge approach of ask the person who knows, you know, and being able to oh, ask your buddy to be able to say that's, that's just fantastic local knowledge. Well, I'm going to be keeping an eye out for that because I, I honestly never would have even considered OPA as a rod and reel target. And I'm trying to think, are there even, I mean, I don't know of any game fish area that keeps record. Does California keep a record of OPAs that have been caught? Uh, IGFA, I mean, it's, it is a game fish. It is listed on IGFA? Wow. The record was broken. If, I, if I'm not speaking out of turn, there was like three fish caught on the XL. Uh, down off Mexico somewhere, I'm getting old, man, three, four, eight years ago, whatever, and three on one trip, and they were all freaking giants, 150 to 200 pound fish. And I think the record fell three day, three times in one day wow. with that, with those fish. So yeah, there is some record of it. They get caught here every single year. I mean, there's a half dozen of them get caught, but it's always somebody who's fishing on a kelp patty and not paying attention and their lure goes too deep, or somebody trolling for sharks um, for whatever reason. You know, we use these deep swimming shark lures and we put a mackerel in the back of it called a bally hood. 
They like to eat those and they will come to the surface, not that you won't see them, but shallow. Um, or you get some kook on a party boat on a tuna trip who lets his bait down 300 feet and somehow manages to hook one. My buddy got one last year. He was sword fishing. And when we sword fish here, our baits are at about a thousand feet, much shallower than what you guys are doing over there. Well, he left his baits in while he repositioned the boat. So he was dragging those baits and they ballooned up with the current from the boat moving, hooked an opa and said, as soon as he shut the boat down, he was bit. And then he wound it in and caught a nice 120 something pound opa. So they're here. It's just, uh, there's not a lot of guys targeting them. And I, I, like I said, I will get it done. There's not a doubt in my mind. And if I don't get it done this year, it'll be next year for sure. And, uh, I don't know. I, I think I'll fall over. You can, you can probably write me off at that point. There's, there's nothing <laughs> left. No, that's great. I can't wait to see the pics and the video on that. And I think I'll be as interested in seeing your reaction as I will to be seeing the actual fish. So excitement. Yeah. yeah. It's just, I don't know. I like any of that stuff. When I was coming up, you know, from like, once I got my own boat around, I don't know, 22, 24, something like that, I made it a, a policy to just learn another species every year, right? Didn't, didn't know how to catch a thrasher shark. Okay. And go, let's go grill all the guys that know what they're talking about. And the guys that are catching them, ask a bunch of questions on BD and go target that fish all season and white sea bass and our local bone fishery and halibut and all of these species, you know, if you spend a year or two really learning about them and talking to the guys that, that are good at catching them who have the experience, you know, it's not, it ain't brain surgery to catch a fish. It's just, you know, taking taking notes and working a little harder than the next guy and being prepared and, and good stuff will happen. Yeah, I, I love that attitude. We, my buddies and I uh, adopted the 80-20 rule that when we're out, 80% can be doing what we're used to doing. We know we'll catch fish, but 20% should be dedicated to trying something new, whether it's a new tactic, a new place, a new species, but trying to always add to that overall portfolio. That's awesome, man. Yeah, and network. I mean, like I've been very fortunate over here. A lot of the guys that I looked up to as a kid who were always in Western Outdoor News and on local TV shows and all that, these legendary West Coast captains, I've had the opportunity to meet them. And to a man, if you're asking the right questions and you're paying attention to the answers and you're coming back showing them that you did it and it worked or whatever, they're an open book. I mean, these guys have got, they've been professional captains from the time they were 25 years old. And now most of them are in their 60s and even 70s. And now they're my mentors and my, I mean, my good friends where I wanted to learn a new spot, a new fishery, whatever. I dial those guys up and I mean, it's better than Google, better than Wikipedia. You're talking about hands-on experience. And again, local knowledge, finding the guy that's done it, the guy that knows how to do it, and learning from them. That's really cut the learning curve for so much of this fishery. And, you know, and I, ho I hope that I'm able to contribute some of that stuff to the newer kids. This whole bluefin thing started off with skipping a yummy flyer underneath a kite, which is something that we did down in Puerto Vallarta to catch yellowfin. It was very familiar to me. And, you know, once I came up here, I, I showed everybody. What's the secret? Let's all go catch some fish. It's good for the business. It's good for the sport. It's it's good for everybody. And, and, you know, that's what I'm most stoked about with this, you know, cycle that we're in on the West Coast is we're making new fishermen. We're getting, we're making lifetime anglers and we're getting people excited about fishing. Wanting to keep that info to your to yourself so you catch more fish or you're, you're the baddest guy on the block. I don't think that's the right attitude. You know, share that info, get everybody stoked. Fishing's a dying sport and it gets harder to enjoy every year thanks to, you know, regulations and and overfishing and commercial and all that. I think, especially when you're in a position like you and I both are, where you have an audience, you really have to go out of your way to embrace new guys and, and get these guys successful. I mean, it's great to be on the water all day, but you know, when you're a new angler, it's about catching fish. And, and if you can help steer guys in that direction, I think that's the right thing to do. 
I, I completely concur. And that is a great drop, drop the mic moment to wrap this up on. Captain Husseini, this has been fantastic. What you guys are doing with local knowledge is just remarkable. It's a wonderful show. And the BD Outdoors Forum is a great resource and great community. I recommend everybody check it out and start following threads that they're interested in. Cap, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks so much for being on the Rodcast. Thanks, it was a pleasure, man. It's great talking with you. And thank you for all the kind words on the show. We are super proud of the show, and, and it's nice to know that you know guys out there appreciate it. Oh, ho, ho, I am so excited that it's time for a bourbon break. But I think today we'll have to have a bourbon adjacent break because I want to pour a glass of Bullet Rye today. I figured that since I reviewed Bullet Bourbon way back in episode three, it's time to take a gander at Bullet's other great whiskey. And so I'm pouring their rye today. And like a lot of the whiskeys I talk about during the Rodcast bourbon breaks, I love the backstory that comes out of Bullet, a distillery that was founded in 1987 and that has been taken up as a solid part of contemporary whiskey culture. They introduced Bullet Rye to their lineup in 2011. Now, in addition to the Bullet Rye and the Bullet Bourbon I reviewed back in episode episode 1.3, Bullet also makes a 10-year bourbon and a limited edition barrel strength bourbon, all of which use high rye recipes. So there's kind of a Bullet palette style that runs throughout all of their whiskeys, a style that might be described as spicy and smooth, kind of like me. And of course, I love Bullet's adaptation of the idea of frontier whiskey and their ethos of that old-timey frontiersman rugged approach to life and whiskey. That comes through, of course, in their tagline, Frontier Whiskey, and in the design of their old-timey bottle and label design, which easily evokes the imagination of some rugged old bearded frontiersman pulling a bottle of bullet out while sitting around a campfire in the woods at the edge of winter. Bullet, in my humbled opinion, really has grabbed hold of one of the best marketing images in the wild whiskey world. But what makes Bullet brands great is that what they put in the bottles lives up to that image. They make really good whiskey, and they're well worth drinking. And that ethos and the quality of their whiskey has certainly led the Bullet brands to become very popular. So, quick history, too. The Bullet name goes back to sometime around 1805 when Augustus Bullet emigrated from France to New Orleans with his family, and then around 1830 moved to Louisville, Kentucky, and opened a few taverns and started making his own whiskeys for his taverns, and then ended up selling them to other taverns in Louisville and New Orleans. But when Augustus died in 1860, the Bullet whiskeys stopped being produced, but his family held on to Augustus's recipes. And in 1987, Augustus's great-grandson, Tom Bullitt, started using those recipes to make the Bullet whiskeys we now know. And he did so independently until 1997 when Seagram's bought Bullet and started making it in the same facility in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, where they also make Four Roses whiskeys. And as is the case with a lot of distillers, Seagram's ended up being bought out by the British company Diageo, and they in turn are owned by the Japanese beverage company Kirin. But in 2017, Karen decided to give Bullet its own distillery in Shelby County, Kentucky, where they now turn out 1.8 million gallons of whiskey every year. So that's a bit about Bullet's history, but I want to tell a quick story about Bullet from before they had really become popular as they are now. 
So you see, a while back, maybe 15 years ago, after a business dinner, I found myself at a hotel bar in Boston, a place that admittedly I don't often go. Boston, not hotel bars, those I go to. And as I was deciding what to drink for the evening, I noticed the bottle of bullet rye on the barkeep's shelf, so I ordered a double neat. Now, when I ordered it, a couple sitting down the bar from me asked what it was I was drinking, and I told them, bullet rye. They had never heard of it. So I, being the loudmouth know-it-all that I am, told them a bit about bullet and about bullet rye, and then I bought them each a single neat to try. Of course, the bartender got in on the conversation, and soon two other guys joined our discussion about bullet rye and whiskeys in general, and they each ordered one. My generosity only goes but so far at the bar, too. Once you walk up and I've already done my buy-in, forget it. You're not buying into the buy-in. And the six of us spent the rest of that night drinking bullet rye and having a big old time, and I kept in touch with two of the guys from that group for a couple of years, and we shared whiskey and fishing stories from time to time via email. So that's my Bullet Rye story, and my thanks to the folks at Bullet for providing the catalyst for a great evening and an opportunity to make new friends on the wild Boston frontier. So with that in mind, let me turn some attention to the Bullet Rye itself. Now, Bullet Rye is a 90-proof whiskey that carries a mash bill of 95% rye and 5% malted barley. There's no corn here, so you know the flavor is going to be rich and spicy. And if you look at that green label on the Bullet Rye bottle, the name appears as Bullet, the number 95, and Rye, reading Bullet 95 Rye. The 95 acknowledging the rye count in the whiskey. Though given the label design and font, it can just as well be assumed to refer to 1895 in line with the rest of the bullet, the bullet bottle aesthetic. But it doesn't, so don't go telling folks that I said that it does. Now, as to the eye of the rye, gold is the word that comes to mind first, with some tints of honey and a light hue of orange. Maybe the word amber works here too, but the bullet rye leans more toward the yellow sunshine of noon than a darker amber. The nose is an homage to all that rye in the to all that rye in the mash bill. It's rich, it's spicy. There's allspice and anise, cinnamon, and a hint of vanilla that announces the sweetness of the rye. There's also a bit of the oak from the aging barrels here too, but only a slight hint. The palate is full of that same rich spiciness, and there's some citrus here too. The sweetness comes out a bit more in the palate than the nose suggests. There's brown sugar and a little caramel with a heavier, darker sweetness, like, like almost a molasses blended in there. The finish presses the spice into the taste memory, and the oakiness makes a final statement so we don't forget its role in the taste spectrum. There's a tinge of leather here, but the spice, a peppery spice, commands the finish. It's not a lingering finish, but it's a pleasant end to a pleasing taste experience. I will say that I like the spiciness of a bullet rye when paired with a cigar, too. It just seems to work well with, you know, a Hemingway. So, yes, I am an admirer of bullets rye, and those are my thoughts on the matter. As a final note, and also my regular disclaimer, as always, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Break Reviews are not sponsored. The distillers have not sent me samples, bastards. Nor do they influence my reviews at all, though I'm always open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The bourbons I review are purchased out of pocket, and my reviews are based on the keen sense of bourbon know-how developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back-alley speakeasies. 
Speaking of, let me give a quick shout out to the iconic Whiskey A Go Go in Los Angeles. And let me just say that I finally got to go to the whiskey for the very first time just a month or so ago. And for me, it was a religious experience. As a big music fan, I had been reading about the whiskey since the late 1970s and had developed a full-on fantasy about how amazing that place must be. So when I got there, I literally, I was in awe. I kept placing my hands on the stage and thinking about how many artists had stood right there. I kept thinking about everything that had transpired in that room over the years. So I kept ordering whiskeys, which came in clear plastic cups, because if you're in the whiskey, you should be drinking whiskey. And I kept staring at the stage and just drinking it all in. I'm glad I went alone, unencumbered by the requirements of social companionship, so I could exalt in the moment and genuflect to the pounding sounds of Ronnie James Dio's band, of course, without Ronnie James Dio, but, you know, may he rest in peace. It may have only been one night, but that night will always stay with me as one of the best bar experiences I've ever had. So here's to the whiskey, a mecca of bar and music. Hey, and here's to my best friends who know the most about me, but refuse to believe it. As always, if you have comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid at inventafishing.com. Let's get back to the water. All right, it is time for this week's top 10. But this week's top 10 isn't so much a countdown as it is a list. Because I'm going to let you in on the top 10 knots that every angler should know. So because different knots serve different functions, and these are the knots that every angler should know, but you really can't say that such and such a knot is better than this other knot and therefore ranked higher, because that ranking would become useless as soon as we shift the focus from, say, tying braided line to fluorocarbon leader, which needs one kind of knot, to tying a hook to monofilament line, which needs another kind of knot. So think of this week's list as a non-hierarchical list and just a list of knots you should know because you should know them. And of course, this is going to be a bit of a hollow list in that in an audio podcast, I can neither show you what the knot looks like, nor can I show you how to tie them. Because if I said, take the tagline and push it through the overhand loop and then wrap it three times around the main line, you'd have no idea what I was describing. Knot tying is one of those skills that is better learned visually and best learned hands-on. Knots also have interesting histories, and many have been used for centuries. There are a lot of great knot books out there with great diagrams for learning how to tie knots, and there are also great videos and animations available on the internets for teaching knot tying. I am a firm believer in learning knot tying since so much of your fishing confidence comes from your being confident in the knots you tie. And one of my fishing mentors taught me that it's also best to tie your rigs the night before you go fishing, because you're when, when you're on the water, your focus is on everything else, and you might rush the tying and, and end up with a less than ideal knot. He says this is particularly true when you're tournament fishing and have the added anxiety and excitement of the tournament that your knot may not exactly be right, and it might lead to a lost fish. So he always says, tie your knots the night before. Now, of course, there are literally dozens upon dozens of knots that have great application and reliability in fishing, not to mention boating. But I'm going to limit the list to our standard 10, both for the time's sake and also just to annoy some of you who inevitably will want to say, how could you leave out my favorite knot? Well, it's not about you. It's about the knots. So let's get knotty. Let's tie one on and talk about 10 knots that every angler should know. 
All right, at number 10, or the first knot on our list, is the improved clinch knot. Now, the improved clinch knot, which is also called a salmon knot in some places, is a solid knot for tying the end of a fishing line to a piece of tackle, like a swivel, a lure, or a sinker. This is a knot that really works best with lighter lines, say for lines up to about 20-pound tests. So it's popular among light tackle anglers. It's an easy knot to tie, and it has good strength. What gives it its strength is that when the line of the knot is pulled, the line tightens down on itself, strengthening the security of the knot. It's also reliable when used when, with mono, fluoro, or braid. So it's a good multi-line kind of knot. Also, just as a point of distinction between the improved clench knot and the clench knot, the improved clench knot is a clench knot that before pulling the knot tight, you run the tag end of the line back through the main loop of the knot before tightening, adding one more locking segment of the knot. Like I said, this would be easier to show, but in an audio podcast, that's what you're getting. Okay, the second knot we all need to know is the Palomar knot, which has the reputation of being one of the strongest knots applied in fishing scenarios. It is often referred to as a near 100% knot because it doesn't create weak or breaking points in the line. It's a very basic knot, and tying it only requires three steps, so it's easy in learning and reliability and strength, and it makes it really useful knot for anglers, particularly anglers new to knot tying. This is one of those knots that just about every knot guide I've read, both in print and online, identifies as one of the best fishing knots that you can use of all the knots you can tie. The Palomar is also particularly reliable when tying braided lines, say uh, to a hook or a swivel. It works well with fluoro and mono too, but it's at its best with braid. Oh, and there's an improved version of the Palomar too, known as the double Palomar, the difference between the two is that with the double Palomar is that instead of making just one overhand knot with the double line, you will make the overhand knot twice, adding an extra step to the tying process. Now, from what I've read, adding this second step will increase, of the, increase the strength of the knot by 15% over the standard Palomar knot. So think about tying double Palomars rather than just Palomars. All right, next up is the Turl knot. This is a knot that gets its name from British Major William Greer Turrell, who made the knot popular in the 1800s. But Turrell himself made clear that he didn't invent the knot, just that he made it popular by using it so much. It's a fairly simple knot to tie, and it's primarily used for tying the end of a line or a tippet to a fly. You can use it, too, to tie the end of a line to a lure or a swivel or whatever, but it's most popular in fly fishing. In its original design, the Turrell knot was a variation on the simple slip knot that was looped over a fly. It's used, it used one loop. However, the advent of monofilament lines and fluorocarbon lines, which slide more easily, required tires to modify the turtle knot and add a second loop. The two loops are then secured using an overhand knot. This is known as the double turtle knot. Both the turtle and the double turtle are reliable knots for fixing lines to hook eyes. Okay, next up is the blood knot, one of those knots that has so many applications and is just as reliable as it gets. And I know a lot of you are wondering about the name of this knot, and there's a really interesting and gruesome history there. You see, the blood knot goes back to the days when sail power ruled the water, and there was a version of what we call the blood knot that was tied at the ends of whips and cat nine tails designed to draw blood when a sailor, or yes, a slave, was whipped for discipline. The knot was tied to the end of these whips in order to do more damage and to draw blood. In sailing and in angling, though, the knot has earned its reputation as a knot for tying two lines together. 
And what makes it so useful is that it works well when tying two lines of different sizes or different materials together. It became a favorite among fly anglers because you can tie together lengths of line and decreasing size to create a tapering line. I rely on the blood knot for tying leader to my main line. And to be honest about it, I think that may be the knot for tying leader to line that I almost use exclusively, but that depends again on what the leader material and what the line material are. Next, let's give some attention to the double surgeon's loop, which is a simple to tie knot that is used to create a loop at the end of the line. It's a regularly used to create a loop-to-loop -loop connection between lines. Basically, the double surgeon's knot is a double overhand knot. It's called a double surgeon's knot because it uses a double strand of line to be tied. Because it doubles the line, it's also a bulkier knot. This is a knot that retains almost all of the line's strength. Think of it as just tying a really reliable knot at the end of a line. Okay, next up at number five, no matter whether you're counting down with me or simply counting the number of knots, it's the Snell knot. The Snell knot is a kind of a hitch knot or a knot that's used to secure a line to an object or another line. Hitch knots are classified based on their ability to be tightened or released, their resistance to slipping, and also their strength. The Snell knot, though, is specifically designed for securing a line to the shank of a hook rather than just to the eye of the hook. Yes, the line may pass through the eye of the hook, but the grip on the hook is primarily from the line wrapping and gripping the hook shaft. In fact, the Snell knot was developed for use with eyeless hooks when hook materials like bone or shell weren't easily fashioned with an eye. One of the benefits of tying a Snell knot on your hook is that because the line grabs the shaft, the knot provides an even straight line pull to a hooked fish. Thus, thus it's a great line for connecting leader directly to the hook. The Snell knot is referred to as a near 100% knot because very little of the line's strength is lost in the knot. Next up is the uni knot, which, no, my British friends, is not the knot that attends university. It is a knot that is used for tying the end of a line to a real spool for joining main lines to leaders or backing and for attaching line to rigging eyes on lures, hooks, swivels, and so on. That is, it really is a multi-use knot that has many applications in fishing. Quick bit of history about the uni knot is that it was first really recognized in the 1944 publication of Ashley, Ashley Book of Knots, but it was listed not as a uni knot, but as the gallows knot, because a lot of people saw it as just a variation on the multiple overhand noose. But it really isn't, per se. In some books, though, it's identified as the Duncan loop, because in the 1960s, Norman Duncan developed it as a knot specifically for fishing. But what really made the uni knot so ubiquitous was that in his classic book, Bates, Rigs, and Tackle, Vic Dunway really made the knot popular. And as a side note, if you do not have a copy of Dunaway's Bates, Rigs, and Tackle, you need to get a copy. It is, with no exaggeration, the best instructional fishing book ever written. I've got multiple copies, including a very early edition that my grandfather gave me and told me to learn everything in the book. Anyway, the uni knot is a really universal knot, hence uni knot that can be deployed in countless ways for fishing applications. All right, next up is the Bemini twist, which is, which is a knot that's primarily used in offshore fishing scenarios to create double line leaders. The Bemini twist makes a loop at the end of the line. The loop is secured at the top with a long barrel of coiled line. One of the things that made the Bimini twist so popular among big game anglers is that because the Bimini twist wraps the line around itself, 
it actually increases the strength of the line and the knot beyond the strength of the line itself. Think of it like this. If you've got a line that, say, is 50-pound test line and you double that line, the two lines together are stronger than just a single strand of that line. This is the same logic of, in physics, by the way, that makes braided lines stronger than monofilament line. The Bimini twist is a rare knot in that, unlike most other knots, which can reduce the overall line strength in the knot, the Bimini twist actually strengthens the knot above the line weight class. The wrap line of the Bimini twist also helps reduce chafing or abrasions to the line. Traditionally, anglers used as a rule of thumb that a Bimini twist is at its strongest using 20 to 30 twists in monofilament or 60 or more for braid. But in February of 2007, Sport Fishing Magazine published an article saying that you actually want fewer twists to gain more strength and that with braid, you really only need 12 twists. However, in refutation of that claim, several anglers showed that using only 12 twists and a Bimini twist for braid, that line would slip and then break. Nonetheless, the Bimini twist stands as one of the strongest knots out there, hence its popularity among big game anglers. Okay, at number two, or number nine, depending on your directionality in this non-hierarchical list, let's go with the Rapala knot. The Rapala knot is a non-slip loop knot that is usually used for connecting the line or leader directly to the lure or hook. Because it relies on a looping structure, the Rapala knot has a reputation for allowing the lure to swim more freely than with a knot that locks down on the rigging eye. It also has a reputation for being one of the strongest looping knots available, and a lot of knot-tying books identify it as the one knot every angler should know. And yes, the knot was developed by the Rapala brothers for use with Rapala lures to give the lures the best swimming action without a swivel or split ring connector. However, the Rapala brothers actually modified the knot that had originally been, des been designed by iconic fly angler Lefty Cray. It's another one of those knots that retains close to 100% of the line's strength, and it really is at its best as a knot for tying a lure to a leader. Okay, or actually, I think you would be tying the leader to the lure now that I think about that. Okay, so that's nine of my top ten, and I think every language English should know all nine of those. But before I get to the final knot, the number one knot, let's get a quick recap of the other nine. At ten, the improved clinch knot, then the palomar knot, the turtle, the turtle knot. I keep wanting to say turtle. It's not turtle, it's turtle. Blood knot, double surgeon's loop, snell knot, uni knot, bimini twist, rapala knot. And the number one knot or the 10th knot or just another knot on this list, if you want to set aside the countdown aspect, isn't really a knot that I'd somehow identify as being any better or worse than any of the other knots on this list because like all of them, like all of the knots here, this one has its application. So to be honest about it, the reason that I put this knot in position one or the last knot I'll talk about today is because this was the first knot my dad taught me how to tie. So it's a knot I use a lot, though it has its drawbacks in some applications as well. It is a very reliable knot. I'm talking about the figure eight knot. A figure eight knot is what is known as a stopper knot. That is, it's a knot that prevents a line from slipping. Interestingly, it's a knot that is most often used not in fishing per se, but in rock climbing because it's used to prevent a line from slipping through a rigging eye. It is not as strong as many other fishing knots, retaining only 75 to 80% of the line's strength, so many anglers double the line of the figure eight in order to increase the knot's overall strength. 
What makes it useful in angling is that it can be tied in two versions, the simple figure eight knot and the looped figure eight knot that leaves one of the loops of the figure eight open for tying to a rigging eye on a hook or swivel or other hardware. It's particularly useful for tying small hooks to smaller test monofilament because it prevents the line from slipping. I use it for tying homemade sabiki rigs or for tying penfish rigs where I want a lot of small hooks and a line on a leader. It's very useful for that. So that is the list of top 10 knots that I think all anglers should know how to tie. But hey, one other interesting knots to think about is the double fisherman's knot, which is also known as the impossible knot because it's one of the most difficult knots to tie. But here's the interesting thing about it. Because it's so hard to tie and it's rarely used in fishing, instead it's more likely to be used in boating and by kayakers and canoeists. And as to a knot tying hint to learn to tie knots, I really recommend that you get two lengths of nylon, polyester, or HMPE rope of about two or three feet each and get one in one color and one in another color. Look for ropes for about one eighth inch in diameter. Paracord works well here too. And use these ropes to practice tying. Having the two colors will let you see how the knots use the two lines for joining knots. The smaller diameters are easy to work, easier to work with than thick diameters, and they'll be good practice for tying fishing line. I will admit that I have several strands of paracord and a strand of orange and a strand of blue nylon in my top desk drawer and that I use to practice tying, and they've probably been in those drawers for the last 20 plus years. It's just a good way to get better at not tying, and when I'm sitting at the desk reading, a lot of times I'll just pull out a strand of line from the desk drawer and practice a knot. Okay, that ties up this week's top 10 list. As usual, if you want to let me know your thoughts about this week's top 10, if you have differing opinions about the knots I've discussed or whatever, just send me an email at sid at inventafishing.com. And as always, if you'd like a fishing professor's top 10 about a particular fishing-related thing, send me an email and I'll see about adding it to my list for future top 10s. That's it for the top 10 week for this week. Let's get back to the Rodcast. Well, ladies and germs, we have reached the end of another episode, and what a great one it has been. I want to thank Captain Ali Husseini, host of Local Knowledge Fishing Show and BD Outdoors, for joining me on the show. That was a great conversation, and I'm really grateful that Captain Husseini took the time to sit and visit for a while. I do hope as well that you enjoyed my thoughts about bullet rye and that you found my abnormal top 10 about the best knots that all anglers should know to be informative, useful, and perhaps even educational. Now, before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The crew is in the galley. I say again, the crew is in the galley. And that just about does it for this week's episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. Be sure to look for next week's episode, which will drop on Wednesday next week. And I hope that you will spread the word about the Rodcast. Let everybody know about it. And of course, if you have a comment or question about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future top 10s, bourbon breaks, interviews, or information about specific fishing-related issues, please feel free to email me at sid at inventafishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to the Rodcast. Hey, be sure to follow Inventafishing on Twitter, Instagram, and friend us on Facebook at Inventafishing. And be sure to check out all the great video content over on the Inventafishing YouTube channel, which includes great gear reviews, new product introductions, and a mess of other great content. I'll be back next week with another episode. You can count on that. And until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on!
The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!